You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 59. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. Chris Lester here, coming to you from Metamore Studios in beautiful Mad City, Wisconsin. I'm here to share my fresh new fiction with you, and to keep you up to date on my efforts to level up from writing hobbyist to writing professional. I'll let you know how it's going later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 16 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, you're going to want to go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. Otherwise, Keep listening for this week's story recap. In our last episode, Morgan Drowling and Misty Halloway went to speak with Baron Kapler, the owner of Kapler Pharmaceutical and legal guardian of the mysterious Telvari Rift. A few hours ago, the Baron's son, Ezekiel Kapler, set off a skimmer bomb in front of Misty and several other people, including Morgan's best friend, Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Cotain. Zeke also absconded with his girlfriend, Julia Mathias, who needs to get to the Lightbringer headquarters by tomorrow night. Morgan doesn't know exactly what the Lightbringers are going to do, only that Misty and Julia need to get there so they can stop the Rift's power from killing them. Unfortunately, Lady Julia is now unconscious, and the pyrokinetic powers the Rift gave her are going out of control. Baron Kapler has turned her over to the care of his doctors, who are treating her in the research labs at Kapler Pharmaceutical. After some tense negotiations, Kapler agrees to let Misty and Morgan take Lady Julia to the Lightbringers. In exchange, Misty has agreed not to invoke the Rite of Wear Guild against House Kapler, which would require Ezekiel and Misty to present themselves to the Metamore nobility in their true forms, which have been warped and twisted by their exposure to the Rift. Since both House Kapler and House Halloway are part of the nobility's pro-human conservative wing, it would be disastrous to the future of both houses if their heirs were revealed as mutated monsters. To get Julia back safely, Misty is willing to forgo that spectacle and let the Kaplers keep their secret. But the wild card in all this is the increasingly unstable Ezekiel, Zeke is convinced that the Lightbringers and the Vampire Syndicate are conspiring to steal control of the Rift from his father. This is why he set off the bomb in the first place. He was targeting Janus Starson, the Lothanasi field commander. Baron Kapler ignored his son's conspiracy theories and sent him to bed, but there's no telling what Zeke will do when he finds out Misty and Morgan have taken his girlfriend away from him. Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 16, Continued. The research labs at Kapler Pharmaceutical seemed designed to give Morgan fits of envy. They covered thousands of square meters in the east wing of Kapler Tower, 
floor after floor of state-of-the-art equipment for extraction, analysis, and synthesis of the most delicate biochemical compounds. Gas and high-pressure liquid chromatographs, DNA sequencers, electrophoresis machines, fine-scale thaumatometers, nuclear magnetic resonators, molecular printers, every piece of research gear she'd ever lusted after, and Kepler seemed to have at least 12 of each of them. And it was clean. Gods, she had never seen a human workplace so clean before. They had all been scrubbed, sanitized, and vacuumed before they could even set foot on the lab floors. The researchers all wore gloves, gowns, bonnets, even protective booties over their shoes. The workbenches were neat and orderly, the fume hoods uncluttered. Even the white tile floors were spotless. There is a heaven, Morgan murmured to Misty. There's a heaven, and Baron Kapler owns it. I could just cry. The Baron led them to an office on the third floor of the labs. According to the signs, this was the therapeutic trials department. Here they met the chief doctor in charge, a theriomorph woman with the form of a gazelle. Morgan lifted an eyebrow at Kapler, surprised to find one of the cursed placed so highly in his employ. This is Dr. Amelia Ashland, Kapler said. She's one of the top people in the world for diagnosing and treating magical illnesses. He raised his chin slightly in Morgan's direction, acknowledging and challenging her judgment of him in one small gesture. Dr. Ashland, Lady Drowling, and Lady Holloway. A pleasure, miladies, said Dr. Ashland, bowing to the two noblewomen. If she was at all disturbed by Morgan's vampirism or by Misty's daedric appearance, she gave no sign of it, not even in her scent. Just two more monsters in the Metamore Menagerie, Morgan thought. Stop me if you've heard this one. A shapeshifter, a demon, and a bloodsucker walk into a lab. How can I assist you, my lord? Dr. Ashland asked. These two are here to take Lady Julia off our hands, Kapler said. The Lightbringers say they have a way to fix what's happened to her. He waved a hand and turned to go. I leave them in your capable hands, Doctor. I'm going back to bed. Guards are by the lift if you need them. The Doctor's prominent ears pricked forward in surprise. Oh, of course, my lord. Good night, then. As Kapler left, she turned her attention back to Misty and Morgan. The Lightbringers? Oh, my, that does explain a few things. Morgan frowned. What things would those be? Well, come and have a look, Dr. Ashland said, beckoning them over to her workstation. I'm sure the doctor who takes over the case will want a copy of our data. Of course, Misty said, but Morgan heard a slight quaver in her voice, and she could smell the sweat that had broken out over the woman's inhuman body. Something about this situation had rattled her badly. What is she afraid they've discovered? Dr. Ashland had called up a set of EEG traces on the screen. Brainwaves were far from Morgan's area of expertise, but even she could see that these didn't look normal. We've been monitoring Lady Julia's brain activity, the doctor said. Her pyrokinesis has been manifesting uncontrollably, and we were trying to figure out what was causing it. The woman flicked an ear in irritation. Unfortunately, not much research has been published on psionic disorders, or anything else connected with psychic ability. It's almost impossible to find subjects who are willing to come forward for study. 
As a person with an unconventional biology myself, I think I understand that, Morgan said dryly. Dr. Ashland acknowledged this with an upturned hand. Be that as it may, we were hoping to identify a specific pattern of brainwave activity that was associated with the use of her power. If the pyrokinetic outbursts were being caused by some kind of seizure, then perhaps they could be treated with standard medications. But instead you found this, Morgan said, gesturing at the wild scribbles on the EEG trace. We found this, yes, Dr. Ashland agreed. At first we thought that the equipment was malfunctioning, but we ran some diagnostics and brought in another machine to verify the results. Everything checked out. This is what's going on in her head. Interesting, Misty said, her tone guarded. What do you think it means, Doctor? At first I wasn't sure what to make of it. Dr. Ashland took a data stick from her desk drawer, plugged it into the workstation, and tapped a few commands as she spoke. I brought in a neurologist friend of mine, and he couldn't make heads or tails of it either. But when he said the Lightbringers were involved, it all made sense. Have you heard of the superposition principle? Sounds like something from physics, Misty said, with evident distaste, or the lead-in to a really nerdy sex joke. It is physics, Morgan said. If two waves overlap each other, they create an interference pattern. Neither wave is harmed, and when they separate, they'll go back to their usual shapes. But while they're together, you get... Her eyes fell back on the screen, and she pointed at it. Something that looks a lot like that, actually. You think there are two sets of brain waves going on in Lady Julia's head. Exactly, Dr. Ashland said. The corners of her muzzle turned upwards in a fair imitation of a smile. The Lightbringers specialize in working on supernatural and extraplanar beings. I think Lady Julia is suffering from some kind of possession. Misty's fingers flexed, and Morgan saw her jaw clench down hard. She's right, Morgan realized. She's right, and you knew about it, and you didn't tell me. A deep suspicion settled in Morgan's core. And I don't think she's the only one. Whom have I been talking to all this time? The Lightbringers haven't explained their treatment plans to me, Morgan said, but I think your reasoning is sound. Is Lady Julia safe to move? I'm sure Baron Kapler would agree that the sooner she's delivered, the better it will be for everyone. We'll need to prep her for transport, the doctor said. We've been trying her on a blend of sedatives and anticonvulsants to stop the pyrokinetic outbursts. So far it seems to be working, although it means keeping her asleep, so it's not exactly a long-term solution. Temperature control has been another problem. We heard, Morgan said. I don't suppose you have any refrigerated coffins you can spare for moving her. Dr. Ashland smirked. This is a research lab, not a cryonics facility, Lady Drowling. But if we cool her down enough before we move her, and then wrap her in a flame-retardant blanket, I think you can get her across town to the Lightbringers without setting anything on fire. Lovely, Morgan said. Does that sound all right to you, Mysteria? Misty visibly shook herself, then looked between Morgan and the doctor. Oh, oh, yes, that'll work. Thank you, doctor. Dr. Ashland nodded once. Here, give this to whoever the Lightbringers put on her case. She ejected the data stick and offered it to them. 
Morgan smoothly stepped up and took it from her hand before Misty could do so. We will, Morgan promised. Can you take us to see her now? Of course, the doctor said. Right this way. The doctor led them deeper into the therapeutic trials department, past a long row of observation rooms with hospital beds and large thermoplastic windows. Most of the rooms were empty. Apparently, Kepler didn't have any new drug trials going on at this location. Most of the observation rooms looked like a thousand other hospital rooms that Morgan had seen in her career, but the last three were set up for climate control. Each one had double-thick insulated walls and a bank of heating and cooling equipment that could be controlled from either inside or outside the chamber. Revolving doors separated the rooms from the rest of the lab, no doubt to minimize heat exchange. The soft whir of air behind the windows suggested a negative pressure ventilation system was also in place. Julia's room was the last one in the row. The young woman lay on a metal gurney instead of a hospital bed, covered with what looked to Morgan like a fire suppression blanket. Her skin was a dappled pattern of orange, yellow, and red, which slowly shifted and swirled as Morgan watched. Steam rose from her body in the same way that breath turned to fog on a cold day. Morgan examined the climate controls. The refrigeration unit was running at full power, with the thermostat set for 10 degrees below zero, but the actual temperature in the room fluctuated in waves, between plus five and minus three. Morgan wondered how much energy it was costing her body to put out that much heat. Too much to sustain this for long, that's for certain. Julia lay motionless on the gurney, asleep or unconscious. The electrode net for the EEG covered most of her head, while an IV fed drugs and saline into her arm. An oxygen sensor and a heart monitor completed the setup. Morgan pondered what sort of attachments they were using— they would need to be made of some heat-resistant material to avoid melting against Julia's body. Here she is, Dr. Ashland said, unnecessarily. She checked the readouts on the screen by the door, paging through the record of Julia's vital signs. Looks like her core temperature is starting to rise again. I'm going to have them give her another bag of refrigerated saline, and then I think we can move her. She pulled her phone out of a pocket presumably to call the nurse on duty. The phone vanished from her hand in a swirl of shadow. I'm sorry, doctor, but I can't let you do that. Morgan looked up in alarm as the nightmare that had been Ezekiel Kapler appeared in the revolving door to Julia's room. He held Dr. Ashland's phone in one squirming tentacle. A moment later it disappeared, transported to who knew where. The doctor stepped back in alarm, bumping into Morgan. The gazelle woman glanced quickly aside at her, then back at the young Kapler. Then she deliberately stepped behind Morgan and Misty, evidently trusting a vampire and a hedonist priestess more than the creature in front of them. Didn't I tell you before, Misty? Ezekiel asked. Nobody takes what's mine. Not even you.
And that's the end of chapter 16. We're going to leave Misty and Morgan there for a few weeks, because it's time to check up on Kate and David. Their mission to deliver Sefi to Lightbringer headquarters is about to encounter a few complications. Find out why next week. Jim Harrison said, Being a writer requires an intoxication with language. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm a word addict. Don't try to cure me. I'm just here for the snacks. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,168 words this week, over the course of 6.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 827 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 25 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of June, I wrote 18,604 words over the course of 24 days, for an average of 775 words per day. I spent 24.75 hours writing this past month. Compared to May, my word count increased by 5%, while my writing time decreased by 6%. This week I hit pause on my sci-fi ghost story and went back to writing The Lost and the Least. I hadn't worked on the novel since May 23rd, and I found that I was missing the characters a lot. I've just finished chapter 24, and the manuscript is over 82,000 words. Of all the adjustments I've had to make this year, moving to a new state, changing jobs, the toughest one for my writing has been the change of time. I don't just mean switching from an afternoon shift to a morning shift, although that's part of it. I mean the way your geographic location alters your perception of time. When I was living in Montana, I was pretty much right in the middle of the mountain time zone. Here in Madison, I'm on the central time zone's eastern edge— That means no matter what time of year it is, the sun rises earlier here than it did back in Livingston, and it sets earlier, too. That has shifted my biological clock significantly. On the one hand, getting up for work in the morning has never been easier, but on the other hand, I have a much harder time staying up late than I ever used to. In California and Montana, a lot of my best writing was done after my partner Melanie went to bed. Here in Wisconsin, my brain is pretty much useless for anything creative after about 10 o'clock. I'm working on ways to adjust to this new reality. So far, the most successful tactic has been to write as soon as I get home from work. At my previous jobs, I usually came home from work feeling exhausted and drained. But this job doesn't take so much out of me emotionally, so when I get home, my mind is sharp and ready to work. Knowing that this is my reality now, I'm trying to structure my schedule so I can take advantage of this peak productivity time. Hopefully I'll be successful, and you'll start to see my daily word counts going up again during the work week. And now, the feedback. Oz Governor writes, G'day, Chris. It's been a few years since I read the ebook version of Things Unseen that I bought. I thought I'd ask you, how close to a straight read is it? Or are you tinkering with it for the purposes of podcasting? And secondly, if HBO came calling with millions of dollars to bring your story to the TV, how much would you be prepared to let them tinker with the story? Thinking about Game of Thrones versus The Winds of Winter, obviously. Hi, Governor. 
For the most part, Things Unseen is a straight read of the current text of the book. There were a few minor errors in the text of the first edition that have since been corrected, and these are reflected in the narration. There have also been some cases where I cut out dialogue tags, or descriptions of how a character says something, because that information is obvious from the way I'm performing it. A couple of episodes ago, instead of saying that a character let out a long breath, I just did it. In general, if something gets in the way of the story instead of making it clearer, then I'll cut it out. As far as HBO is concerned, I'm more than open to the idea of a TV deal. And I don't really have a problem with TV producers streamlining the story, the way Benioff and Weiss have done for Game of Thrones. With very few exceptions, I think the changes they've made to A Song of Ice and Fire have actually made the story better. They've stripped out some superfluous characters and storylines and streamlined others, while keeping true to the essence of the books. If someone wanted to do that with Metamore City, I would be overjoyed, especially if they had the kind of budget Game of Thrones has. That having been said, I don't know that a live-action version of Metamore City would ever really work. The Theriomorphs would be very hard to do convincingly, and they're an important part of Metamore City's flavor and history. An animated production of some kind would be more likely. My dream adaptation would be something like the Star Wars Rebels TV show. I think that style of animation would be fantastic for conveying the magic and sci-fi grandeur of Metamore City. But hey, if someone wants to throw millions of dollars at me, I can be flexible. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Laster. The fan page is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To help support the show, you can make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And if you like my work, write a review on iTunes or review my books on Amazon. It makes a big difference. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.